We continue our study this morning on O. Palmer Robertson's book, The Christ of the Prophets. If you don't have a copy, you should get one. It's excellent. Um, I've really enjoyed reading it. Uh, there are two versions of this. There's a, a smaller, abridged version, and then there's the, the full version here. If you're going to buy it, why not just go ahead and get the big version? So let me just encourage you to add that to your library. It will be useful to you. Uh, there are two prophets whose ministries stand in significance for those who are in exile, and those are the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel. They are present with the exiles as they are in Babylon. And so this morning we're going to look at Ezekiel and the importance of his ministry. And not a whole lot is known about the exiles and their practices for worship. Um, o. Palmer Robertson, he, he throws out some questions and considers, is this the period in which the synagogue system emerged for the Jews? It would make sense that they're away from Jerusalem. And so while they're away from Jerusalem, is this the period of time in which they established the synagogue to gather for worship? Uh, did circumcision and Sabbath observance become more prominent while they were there in exile? Uh, did they continue practicing the sacrament of circumcision? Did they rest on the Sabbath day from their work? Did people plan to build a new temple in the land of their exile? Did they ha have plans while they were in Babylon to build a house of worship? And did they regularly gather for worship while they were there? Were they able to? Were they encouraged to? And the answer is to these questions, we simply don't have a lot of information. We don't really know uh, about these worship practices for the exiles while they were in Babylon. What was the experience of those who were carried away in exile and help me with the two dates here remind me when was the northern kingdom of israel carried away defeated and carried away by the assyrians what year 722 bc absolutely very good and when was the southern kingdom of judah carried away in exile this is a trick question carried away in exile by the babylonians 856 is incorrect. 586 is partially correct. It's a trick question. There were three deportations for the southern kingdom, and the first began in 605 B.C. And 586 is the date in which uh, you might call it the, the, last, uh, the last of the last, okay? Uh, the, uh, that, that's when Jerusalem was just decimated okay and so three deportations for the southern kingdom beginning in 605 and the last one in 586 uh o palmer he references for us some of the just the records from ancient history that it's reported that the assyrians over a period of four centuries deported some four and a half million people how reliable of a number is that I think it's the best that we have. Uh, these ancient kingdoms were notorious for embellishing 
numbers that they would have uh, of battles, of uh, underplaying those lost in battle and overplaying those that they captured. Um, so how reliable are these numbers of four and a half million people? It's, I would just say, like the COVID numbers, it's the best that we have, okay? The Assyrians would exile families and communities together, it's reported, but they would place them in unfamiliar conditions. So if you lived in a coastal region, when the Assyrians came and conquered your lands, they would deport you, exile you from your land with your community, with your family, with your children, most often if you survive the war, and they would take you away and they would reestablish you in an area that you were unfamiliar with. So if you were familiar with the, the sea, they might establish you in a mountainous region. And if you were familiar with a mountainous region, they would establish you perhaps by the sea. Some people took up normal lives of work. They carried on their trades. Others uh, were uh, voluntarily drafted for the service in the military fighting the wars for the Assyrians. Um, others were sent to repopulate abandoned or desolate areas. You can imagine that, right? Being taken from your community with your family and just being established in a region where there's virtually no people and you're being sent there to repopulate that region. And some individuals were, of course, enslaved and they were enslaved in various capacities uh, in the kingdom, under the service of the king, enslaved in the military, enslaved uh, in all different kinds of ways by wealthy aristocrats. Uh, so this is, this, these are the reports that we have for those carried away by the Assyrians, and we would expect something similar for those carried away in exile by the Babylonians. For the Israelite, for those living in the promised land, in the land of Judah and in the land of Israel, exile was punishment for what? Covenant disobedience. Exile was punishment for covenant disobedience. And in this way, the prophets function like God's prosecuting attorneys. They hold up the law of the Ten Commandments and they prosecute God's covenant people, letting them know where they, where and how they have been disobedient, where and how they need to obey, and how they ought to return to the Lord, seeking his forgiveness that they might be restored. Leviticus 26, uh, if they did not listen to the commandments, walking contrary to God's law, then God would scatter them among the nations. So I've often, you know, pondered this, I thought about this uh, while I was in seminary, is God ending his covenant with his people by sending them into exile? Was this a sign that the covenant was over, that they were sent out from the land? Yeah, that, that's the conclusion that I drew, is that I would say, no, it's not a sign that the covenant is over. Rather, it's a sign of God enforcing his covenant because he is enforcing the very consequences that he foretold 
in the book of the covenant through his prophet Moses. If they did evil, they would, quote, utterly perish from the land God was giving them to possess. We read that in Deuteronomy chapter 4. In 2 Kings 17, we read that God sent the prophets to call his people to turn from their evil ways. Quote, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. Notice here that even Israel, even rebellious Israel, the northern kingdom and all their infamous idolatry, they receive the blessing of God's spoken word through the mouth of a prophet. So God sent his prophets uh, to Israel and Judah uh, saying, turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. So you see here the prophets functioning as God's prosecuting attorneys, calling them to repent of their sins and obey the law of God. So how did the Israelites respond? What might they be tempted to think? So fast forward now, 586, in Babylon, those who were in Judah are carried away into exile. What would they be tempted to think while they are there in exile? What would be some of the things they would struggle with? God's abandoned us. Mm -hmm. What else? What was that, Rose? Punishment? Mm -hmm. what, how, how long is this punishment going to last? What will be the consequences of this punishment? Mm -hmm. Is it fair that we're sitting here? Are, in, in what regard? Is the punishment too harsh or too lax? They believe. That the punishment was too harsh? Okay. They didn't deserve to be there. God, you're treating us unfairly. We certainly see that in the minor prophet. Um, is it Malachi? Don't quote me on that. What else might they struggle with? Is the covenant over? Is this it? Are we not God's people? anymore like the prophet Hosea would say lo ami not my people name your child Hosea lo ami not my people what else some might have repented some did repent absolutely some remain faithful in service to the Lord. We certainly see that in the book of Daniel that we'll be studying next, where Daniel, uh, you know, the, it's, it's made clear for us that Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are remaining faithful to the Lord, and God is blessing them for that, even in Babylon. Yeah. How did God use the ministries of Ezekiel and Daniel to the exiles? Why, was, why were their ministry so important? It encouraged them. Yeah, yeah, the covenant's not over. There is hope. How else? It 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you think about this, they're stripped away from the temple, and here's the prophet Ezekiel, and he lets them know, God's with you. He speaks to them. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. The, God didn't have to speak to them. He could have just taken them away and no longer spoke to them. But the fact that he would raise up prophets to speak to them is an act of God's mercy and grace and his condescension down to them. Think about the prophet Daniel. He's reading the book of Jeremiah and he realizes how long the exile is to last. And so he begins to pray. And he confesses the sins of the nation and began praying that the Lord would bring the exile to a close and that they would return. So let's look here at Ezekiel's distinctive message. This is on page two of your handout. Let's look at some introductory matters related to his prophecy. This is Ezekiel's, uh, some call it, uh, if you read the good uh, critical commentaries that, you know, they like to say things in German that you don't know. Uh, uh, sites in living, uh, I'm probably even pronouncing that wrong, which means setting in life, which, is, which essentially just means the context of Ezekiel. So let's look at the context of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1, chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. In the 13th year, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there or click there. Ezekiel 1, 1 through 3. Let's look together. Ezekiel 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Kibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Very interesting way to introduce this book, a double dating that we have. He's not dating two people at the same time, okay? He's giving two references. That was a bad joke, I'm sorry. He's giving uh, dates for his ministry. So the 30th year is likely a reference to Ezekiel's age. What is Ezekiel's occupation? He's a priest. And when did priests begin their service in the temple? 30. So it's likely here that what we're reading is a reference to his age where he's identifying this was the year. Think about this for what's forthcoming, okay? Think carefully about this for what's forthcoming. This is the year that Ezekiel would begin his ministry in the temple. Problem. He's not in Jerusalem to be serving in the temple. But what does he see in his visions? It's not a trick question. Jonathan, you know it. The temple, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, where is he located? He lets us know. Where is he located? He's in Babylon. Specifically where? Kibar Canal? Uh-huh. Who is he with? He's with the exiles. Yeah. What's the timing of this? It's the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, which we can pretty accurately date as 592 B.C. Okay? In 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar conquered the young king, Jehoiachin. He uh, took King Jehoiachin, the queen mother, all his wives, his officials, and then uh, a thousand leading men of the land, as well as all the golden treasures of the temple that Solomon had amassed 400 years earlier. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he loots all the valuables in Jerusalem. He takes away the, the young king. Uh, takes away the queen mother, all his wives, carries them away into exile in Babylon. Then what happens? King Nebuchadnezzar places his uncle, King Zedekiah, on the throne. 586, 587, King Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem, the walls, and the temple. Why does he do that? Because King Zedekiah... He staged a rebellion siding with other nations against Babylon. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does is he sends his armies and they decimate Jerusalem. They built siege works around the walls and they cut off the water supply going into Jerusalem. And so when you read uh, Lamentations, it's the, the picture there is horrible where people are starving to death and begin practicing cannibalism um, because they, you know, it's essentially they're just waiting them out for all their supplies inside the walls to dry up. And that's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar summoned rebellious King Zedekiah before him, murdered his sons before his eyes to reinforce the idea he would have no successors and then plunged the helpless king into perpetual darkness by doing what? Putting his eyes out. It's horrendous. Horrendous. This is the context of Ezekiel's ministry. These are the people that he is ministering to. Here's a simple outline of Ezekiel, and if you're preparing for ordination exams to be a teaching elder, this will get you a pass. If you're asked, what's the outline of the book of Ezekiel? 1 through 24, prophecies before the fall of Jerusalem and final exile. Chapters 25 through 32, Ezekiel announces God's judgment against the nations. Ezekiel 33 through 48, restoration from Babylon and the restored temple. So God uses first Ezekiel to prophesy to the exiles his uh you know, his prophetic ministry is really interesting. God has Ezekiel do some strange things. He has him build a, a mock-up of the city of Jerusalem and pretend like there's siege works laid against it. And it's sort of like this theater that he's uh, staging for the exiles who are there. Uh, he has Ezekiel cut off his hair and his beard and chop it up and send it to different regions. Uh, he has Ezekiel. He tells him to take some dung and to bake some cakes on human feces. And he says, Lord, I'm a priest. I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, okay, you can cook it on cow dung then. So his, his ministry is 
is uh, it's fun to read the prophetic ministry of Ezekiel. It's, it's strange for sure. In chapters 32 through uh, chapters 25 through 32, God announces judgment on the nations. And it's important to understand that, that God is using these foreign nations to judge his people. But when God is done using the foreign nations to judge his people, he's going to judge those foreign nations. Okay? So he's using Babylon, he's using Nebuchadnezzar to judge Judah. But when he's done using Nebuchadnezzar to judge Judah, guess what God's going to do? He's going to judge Nebuchadnezzar and he's going to judge Babylon. Why? Well, the nations mocked Judah at the time of their fall. There are several places. The Ammonites mocked them. Uh, the Edomites, as people were fleeing, the Edomites actually captured some of their brethren, right? The Edomites are the offspring of whom? Esau. So these are their fellow kinsmen, and the Edomites captured and surrendered people fleeing the destruction, surrendered them to the foreign armies invading. It's a terrible thing they did. Uh, the nations were prideful about Judah's fall. They boasted about it. They were happy to see Judah fall. And the nations would learn who is the true sovereign. And we see this repeated throughout the prophecies of Ezekiel where God is declaring, then you will know that I am the Lord. He's saying that to foreign nations, to Tyre and Sidon and to Edom. Uh, he's letting them know that when, when I judge you, you're going to learn who's truly king. It's not the Assyrian king. It's not the Babylonian king. It's not the Egyptian king that you thought could save you from the hand of Babylon. Yahweh is sitting on his throne, and he can judge any nation however he wants, anytime he is ready to. And you are going to learn who is the true king. And then in 33 through 48, we see this restoration from Babylon, this promise that exiles, a remnant would return back to the land and that the temple would be restored. So let's look at a few of these. Ezekiel's commissioning. We see that Ezekiel, he has this vision of God's presence there with them in Babylon. Okay, so you have to remember time and time again, God's Shekinah glory would come and meet with his people. You remember Moses in the tent of meeting? The Shekinah glory would come down on the tent of meeting. Moses on Mount Sinai, God's presence would come down on Mount Sinai. Uh, the tabernacle was filled with God's presence. Uh, when the temple was dedicated, God's presence came and filled the temple so that the priests were not able to even minister before the Lord. And so what Ezekiel sees is he sees the, the glory of God, but it's not in Jerusalem. It is with the exiles in Babylon. And he sees God's presence. It's like he sees God's throne being carried by uh, angelic hosts, and he sees these wheels, a wheel within a wheel, and they have eyes and they move all over the place and they're quick as lightning. You're like, what on earth is this, right? What am I, what am I reading here, all right? But what, what, I, what Ezekiel is seeing here is that God's 
presence is not confined to the temple in Jerusalem. God's presence is mobile. God's presence can go with his people. If if he wants to lead his people through the desert with his presence, he can do that. And if he wants to go to the the land of the exile with his covenant people, God can do that. And so what Ezekiel sees is he sees that God's presence has, has moved, you might say. It's mobile, and it is there with his people in exile in Babylon. Very important. Ezekiel then begins to have these visions, and in chapters 8 through 11, Ezekiel sees God's presence departing from the temple in Jerusalem. And it's done in a, it's, he, he sees the vision, or he sees the temple in a vision, okay? He sees uh, defilement in the temple. He sees what's called the image of jealousy in the temple in Jerusalem. He sees 70 elders worshiping at a shrine inside the temple. He sees Hebrew worship, uh, Hebrew women worshiping Tammuz, or Tammuz, however you pronounce that. He sees 25 men with their backs turned to the temple and worshiping the sun. And so here's the prophet Ezekiel, and in this vision, okay, now he understands. Why are we in exile? Well, the temple is not pure. God's presence dwells there, but yet those who come and worship there are worshiping idols. And that's what he sees. And as a result, he sees the Shekinah glory depart and leave the temple. And it it exits the temple, and the glory of God positions, it stops on a mountain east of the city. And what mountain was east of the city? The Mount of Olives. And it's as if God's presence settles there on the Mount of Olives, and God is watching the impending destruction that is going to happen on Jerusalem. So God's presence has been removed, and now God is watching to, he is watching and waiting for the Babylonians to come and destroy the city. Couldn't help but to think of Jonah rendering judgment on Nineveh in Assyria. And what does he do after he finishes ministry? He goes, he finds a safe space away to see if God will change his mind and rain down fire from heaven on the Ninevites. Isn't it also interesting that the Lord Jesus Christ stood on the Mount of Olives and he prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem under the hands of the Romans? interesting connection there Ezekiel eleven sixteen. though I have removed them far from the nations and though I scattered them among the countries yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone this is one of the important things that the exiles are learning is you don't need a temple for God's presence to be with you this is one of the hard lessons that they had to learn just as uh, Jer- they would Uh, Jeremiah would parrot their sayings, right? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Oh, the temple of the Lord is with us. God will never destroy this place. 
and they have to learn the hard way, you don't need a temple for God's presence to be with you. God's presence is not confined to a temple. Two radical concepts in Ezekiel. First of all, the covenant Lord himself is their sacred dwelling place. Not in buildings made with human hands. God himself. God himself is their temple. He's the one who abides with them. Second, any place on earth can be the locale for God's meeting with his people. You don't have to gather in Jerusalem at the temple to worship the Lord or to pray. Wherever you are, God's presence can be with you and you can worship the Lord and pray no matter where you are. I know your brain's spinning. You're thinking about the new covenant, aren't you? We're going to get there. There is the hope of restoration beyond exile. And restoration would come. Uh, Ezekiel pronounces judgment on the shepherds of Judah. They, they have been horrible shepherds. Uh, they've not cared for God's people. And so the Lord says that he himself will search for his sheep and seek them out. He's going to be their shepherd, the Lord tells his people through the prophet Ezekiel. The Lord is going to be their shepherd. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice, Ezekiel 34, 16. So God himself is going to shepherd his people. But in that very same chapter, we have God saying, on the one hand, he will shepherd them himself, and then we see a promise of a greater David. There'll be another shepherd who will come. He's referred to as my servant David. God will set up one shepherd over them. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Okay, wait a minute. Is the Lord going to shepherd his people himself? Or is there going to be another descendant from the line of David, a king who will shepherd God's people? And what's the answer? Yes. You guys have caught on to my trick questions. The answer is yes. Who was the shepherd? Well, it's Jesus, of course. This is the background of John chapter 10. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm the one from the line of David that God has sent, God in the flesh, who will care for his people. And this includes not only the gathering of Israel, but also the gathering of the Gentiles. Where Jesus says in John 10, I have other sheep in another fold that you don't know about. And I'm going to call them, and I'm going to gather them, and I'm going to make one flock with one shepherd. So even here, we're getting an anticipation of the new covenant. Restoration, not only would it come through a shepherd, it would come through the consummation of the divine covenants. And we've already learned how, uh, what was the analogy you used, Travis? Like uh, chili 
you use all these food analogies in your teaching and your preaching, but one of them was, you know, everything goes in and the, the flavor comes out. Melting pot, that's right, melting pot. Travis used the analogy of a melting pot, and that's what we're seeing here in Ezekiel. All the covenants are thrown into the melting pot. Let's look at some of them. Restoration, from, uh, restoration comes as the fulfillment of the covenant of works. I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So here they are, dead and lifeless. God resurrects these bodies in this vision, and he breathes his spirit upon them, and they live. What's that sound like? Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God took man and formed him from the dust of the ground, and he breathed upon him, and he became a living creature. Restoration fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Also, they would dwell in the land given to Jacob. So this was a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Restoration fulfilled the Mosaic covenant. God would cause them to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. This is language taken straight from the book of the law that Moses declared to his people to be careful to walk in the statutes and be careful to obey God's rules. This was also a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. How so? Because God had promised to David that one of David's offsprings would, one of his sons would care for his people and shepherd his people. And so restoration comes through God's servant, David, who will be king over them and shepherd them. Restoration also comes in terms of the new covenant. So you take all these covenants, you throw them into a melting pot, and when you eat them, what, when you eat what comes out of the pot, what do you have? You have the new covenant. You have the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What a great promise. And all of this uh, comes together it's like the sound of a symphony to produce this one beautiful promise that there will be a new covenant that God will establish with his people. The covenants have not been broken by God. Rather, the covenants will all find their fulfillment in the promise of the new covenant. Restoration would be like the, the uh, dry bones coming back together. You should go look up on YouTube after church today, Ezekiel and the dry bones. Some of you know that old song, Ezekiel and the dry bones. Restoration would be accomplished by uh, reuniting the divided kingdoms. Ezekiel is told to take a stick Right on one stick, Israel. Right on the other, Judah, and tie them together. And when he's asked, what does this mean? He's to tell them, oh, God's going to bring, God's going to bring these kingdoms back together. Well, how is he going to do that? Well, some have proposed that God has kept a list of the ten lost tribes because they've been dispersed. You don't really know who they are. And so this is literally going to be fulfilled as God calls back a remnant of the ten lost tribes 
back to the land of Israel, reuniting them with the two and a half tribes in Judah. What is more likely is this is fulfilled in a theological way. By the exiles, the tribes of the northern kingdom become not my people, as the Lord declared through the prophet Hosea. They were absorbed into the Gentile mass. They were sent off, you might say, living without God and without hope in the world. But under the new covenant, God declares in Romans 9, those who are not my people, they become what? They become my people. Right, so the way that this is being fulfilled then, according to the Apostle Paul, is by gathering in the Gentiles, the ten lost tribes. That promise is fulfilled as they are gathered in along with the rest of the Gentiles and put into the family of God. Restoration would involve the final victory all, all, all over all opposing powers. And if you grew up, under uh, dispensational, premillennial rapture theology, you know all about the Gog and the Magog War. Okay, it scares you to death when the preachers preach on the Gog and the Magog War, right? Birds coming and eating the dead bodies. It's horrifying, the pictures that got painted uh, by the preachers in the church where I grew up. And if you grew up in a fundamentalist, uh, Baptist church, dispensational, premillennial, rapture theology. You heard those sermons too. Yeah, let's not go there. Let's not, all those weird people and hobbits and all that stuff. That's another class for another day. Rather, what we should understand is what Ezekiel is seeing there is eschatological. It is, it is more of a reference of God's final victory over all the evil powers of the world, okay? And I think the strongest argument to that end is that uh, it's referenced in the book of Revelation. It's referenced in the book of Revelation and would seem to be used that way. So rather than interpreting Revelation Forward, we should read Revelation and interpret back, understanding the eschatological implications of what we read about in Ezekiel for the Gog and the Magog War. Clear as mud? And then lastly, restoration would include a plan for the final temple. And I'm rushing through this because I only have a couple of minutes left. But what Ezekiel sees in his last vision, and it's a vision, is a new temple, okay? This is different from the, uh, the information, the revelation that Moses receives on Sinai when he receives the instructions for the temple by direct revelation. Ezekiel includes this as one of his visions of God in Ezekiel 40, okay? So we should understand right there that just like these other visions that Ezekiel had, there's a symbolic nature to the vision that he's about to have of the temple. Um, some people will argue that there'll be a, a rebuilt temple, a literal, actual rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And O. Palmer Robertson says there's several problems with that. Number one, 
the rebuilt temple with the measurements in the book of Ezekiel, it won't fit on the temple mount. It's too big. In fact, it would need like a whole other mountain. Um, there's miraculous healing water that flows out of the temple, which would indicate a symbolic nature. Uh, it's utilized in Revelation 21 of the consummate age to come. The new heavens and the new earth are described using the vision that Ezekiel has of a new temple, taken straight from the book of Ezekiel. Jesus couldn't serve in the new temple if there were a literal new temple. Jesus couldn't serve in it because he's not from the tribe of Zadok, as prophesied in the book of Ezekiel. So if there's a rebuilt temple, Jesus isn't allowed to serve there. The Jews never patterned or attempt to pattern a new temple after Ezekiel's instructions. There's no indication in any of their building projects that they utilize the uh, vision that Ezekiel had to rebuild the new temple. And in fact, the exact opposite is true when they built the tabernacle and the first temple. They were meticulously careful to build everything to the exact specifications that Moses received on Mount Sinai. And renewed sacrifices at this temple, what would they do? What would they accomplish? Christ is the once for all sacrifice who has already given his life for our sins. And so it, the, the re resumed sacrifices would not accomplish anything. The significance of this vision, what is it? Well, it begins to be realized in their return home, 586. They do begin, or 536, we, yeah, 536. They do begin a rebuild campaign. The glory did not uh, even compare to the first temple. It also becomes fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus identifies himself as the temple. Not just the temple, but the temple who will be destroyed and be rebuilt in three days. Isn't that awesome, right? And he's the temple from which rivers of living water flow as those come and worship him. Probably another reference back to Ezekiel. Additionally, believers are identified by Paul in 1 Corinthians as a temple. You are the temple of God. And as I mentioned about the book of Revelation, this becomes fully realized of the new heavens and the new earth that uh, on the the, what, what awaits us is a temple that is not a temple. You say, what on earth are you talking about? All of the new heavens and the new earth are a temple. The whole new creation Everything becomes a temple and a place where we worship God as his glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Oh, what a day that will be. Let's pray.